2: Not every job is glamorous. The person who cleans the horse stables or mops the floor at a football stadium doesn't win any awards. They aren't lauded for their efforts, despite their necessity. Some jobs are thankless, even though without them, things would get pretty bad. And it's been that way for a very long time. Some jobs during the 16th century seemed less than desirable. Certain individuals were tasked with helping kings and queens in intimate and unpleasant ways. Queens often had women of the bedchamber who would assist them in daily duties, like getting dressed or drawing a bath. A lady of the bedchamber would also act as a confidant and a personal assistant. Kings had a similar arrangement with someone entitled the Groom of the Stool. Like a woman of the bedchamber, the Groom of the Stool would help the king wash up and put on his clothes. But he also had another duty, which involved helping him onto his throne. And you're not thinking of the right throne at this moment. When a king had to use the bathroom, he relied on his groom of the stool to assist him. This very important person would prep the king's toilet, which was a velvet-padded box with a hole in the top. Inside the box were two pewter chamber pots, while outside a length of fabric for cleanup was also provided. This royal stool could be carried anywhere for those times when the king had to shed his clothes quickly and do his business— King Henry VII even created a special room known as the Privy Chamber for when he had to go. Only grooms were allowed to go in there with him. But the groom of the stool wasn't just responsible for being the king's bathroom caddy. His, um, duties also consisted of things like watching what the king ate and when anticipating he might have to go next, oh, and controlling who had access to him at any time. On top of all of that, the groom assisted the king with getting dressed, and undressed each day. But perhaps his most important function was as a sounding board for when the king was at his most vulnerable, like when he was using his portable commode. You see, the groom of the stool served as the king's personal secretary during bathroom time, which made him very popular with lower members of the court. They would pass on their questions and concerns to him so that he could ask the king, given that the groom had his captive audience squatting nearby. He was a personal assistant, and chief of staff all in one. However, if you think the job was a bad gig, you'd be wrong. The groom had the power to influence the king's opinion on almost any subject. With a few words, a person could have their life changed for better or for worse, so it was a good idea to always be on the groom's good side. King Henry VIII's groom, Sir Anthony Denny, held the king's stamp, which acted as an official signature. Denny had the power to approve any documents on behalf of the king and King Henry VII entrusted his groom to carry out what was considered fiscal terrorism on the local gentry, made up of wealthy farmers, knights, and their heirs. In order for the court to bring in more money, they came up with numerous laws and taxes to siphon money away from the workers and into the king's pockets, all of which was orchestrated by the king's personal treasurer, the groom. Grooms were also keenly aware of the political dealings going on within the court, though they almost never attended official meetings. They usually heard things later on when the king was regaling them while seated upon his stool. In some cases, the role of groom was performed by a whole entourage who would sit with the king while he went to the bathroom. It was rare for a king to ever be alone, even while he slept. Personal attendants often stayed in the same bedroom as the king in case he needed anything during the night. To be a groom of the stool was a great honor, groom positions were coveted by many, and for good reason. They allowed unfettered access to the king at almost all times. And all they had to do was make sure the king could do his business, both official and otherwise, safely and securely. And that doesn't sound like a crappy job at all.
1: This is it. Your moment. at purdueglobal.edu
3: you're probably careful with your personal information but what about the other places that have it like the doctor's office that mixed up your files they have your social security number the power company that mistakenly cut your service has your payment info and last three addresses and the hotel that lost your reservation has your passport info your information is in endless places out of your control Any one of them could accidentally expose you to hackers and identity theft through lax security, breaches, or simple mistakes. But LifeLock monitors millions of data points every second and alerts you to a wide range of threats. If your identity is stolen, a U.S.-based restoration specialist will fix it, guaranteed or your money back, with plans covering up to $3 million for stolen funds and expenses. Mistakes happen. Don't let not having protection be one of them. Save up to 40% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 40%. Terms apply.
0: Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America.
2: In 1859, English poet Edward Fitzgerald translated astronomer and poet Omar Khayyam's poems and published them as a collection. At first, the book didn't fare well commercially. But by 1872, the poems became so successful in the United States that there were clubs dedicated to the Persian poet. Most of Khayyam's works were quatrains, a stanza of four lines with alternating rhymes. He believed that fate was an unstoppable force and nothing could change it. Many of his poems centered around death, or at least hinted at it. So beloved were the poet's verses that renowned English bookbinder Francis Sangorski decided to make the most expensive and elaborate book ever made. That was no small feat, since back in the late 1800s, bookbinding was an art form. Pages were often gilded using a light coating of gold along the edges. While earlier books had been bound in paper over stiff boards, other books were bound in cloth and leather. The more prominent books were leather bound and used gold tooling on the covers and spines. Sangorsky covered the pages in the finest leather dyed in royal green. The cover included a thousand jewels, including rubies, turquoise, and garnets. All 600 pages were made from gold. He spared no expense. He had the front stamped with a gilded Greek bazooki, an instrument similar to a mandolin. On the back, there were gilded images of three peacocks, and apparently, that was what doomed the book. You see, many European cultures consider peacocks bad luck. In the 13th century, for example, invaders often wore the bird's magnificent plumes. Others believed that keeping a peacock feather in the house would bring you bad luck. And then there's the superstition that bad luck comes in threes. The ornately appointed book became known as The Great Omar, and it took Sangorsky two years to complete it, Once finished, he put it on a ship bound for New York City where the book might find the most influential buyer. But U.S. Customs wanted an enormous customs fee, so Sangorski had the book returned to England. Unfortunately, a coal strike there brought the economy to a standstill, and few wanted to purchase such an expensive item. Disheartened, he placed the book up for auction, where it sold for less than half his target price. The new owner was proud of his bargain, and like Sangorski, he tried to send it to New York City. For whatever reason, though, he wasn't able to secure Voyage on a cargo ship, but was delighted to send it aboard a first-class luxury liner on its maiden Voyage. You can see where this is going, right? That's right. The book sets sail to America on the Titanic. Whatever is left of the book is still somewhere beneath the North Atlantic Ocean. A second tragedy struck not long after the Titanic's fateful journey, though. Although Sangorski couldn't swim, he at some point in his life jumped into a river to save a drowning woman, only to drown as well. After that, there were whispers that the book had cursed him. Sangorski's partner, George Sutcliffe, scoffed at such a rumor and set out to create a second version of the book. While not as elaborate as the first, it was still an expensive and ornately decorated book. Surely the new owner would be delighted to have such a beautiful piece of work. That wasn't to be, though. When World War II erupted, Sutcliffe had the book placed into a London bank vault for safekeeping. And that's when the Germans dropped bombs all over the city. The bank, the vault, and the book were all destroyed. Shortly afterward, Sutcliffe suffered a stroke and passed away. He'd left the firm to Stanley Bray, his nephew, who decided to make his own version of the book. His effort took decades and was finally completed in 1989. Five years later, he also died. The book never made it to auction, and instead was donated to the British Library, where it resides today. Bray was asked shortly before his death if he was superstitious or believed in fate. He replied that he wasn't a believer, though admitted that the peacock might be a symbol of disaster. That was his story, and like fate, he was bound to it. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities.